Welcome, everyone. So we are very pleased to once again agree to sponsor the Renee and Alexander Bohm Memorial Lecture. And we thank Alyssa and Dan for sponsoring the lecture every year. And tonight is actually Tu uh, Bishvat. So the topic, Ki Hadam here it says each person a tree. I guess one could question whether it means each person a tree or is, is each person a tree. But either way, that's the topic. There's no question mark. Our speaker this evening is Shai Sekunda, who's the Jacob Nusa Professor of Judaism at Bard College. His research focuses on classical Jewish texts and history, especially the Babylonian Talmud. He's the author of the Iranian Talmud, reading the Bavli in its Iranian context. His next book, The Talmud's Red Fence, Menstruation and Difference in Babylonian Judaism and Sasanian Context, is scheduled to appear in 2020. He writes regularly about Jewish scholarship and popular culture in the Jewish Review of Books. So, Dr. Sekunda, welcome, and looking forward to a uh, formative evening. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Rabbi Silver, and of course, thank you to the Baum family for sponsoring uh, this evening. And thank you to all of you for coming. Uh, there was a scheduling change, as many of you know. Last Sunday was Super Bowl Sunday. Now, I, I was ready to learn and teach, but some people, I think, had other plans. And tonight, I was informed that it's the Oscars. So the pressure is on. Hopefully, it won't only be a, a real performance, but it'll be an opportunity to, to do some serious, inspiring learning together. It is Tubishvat, uh, and it's an opportunity to not only follow the history of a certain phrase from the Torah, uh, but also to contemplate the moment in which we find ourselves. And that is, of course, a moment of some trepidation and even fear regarding climate change and, and things, things of that sort. Now, if you have a handout, uh, I have at the top of a page a not very pleasant uh, image. It's by a Canadian painter, A.Y. Jackson. And the year should tell you that he's depicting uh, a moment, a cataclysmic moment in human history. Of course, the, uh, the First World War. The reason why I put it here is because often we think of Tu B'Shvat merely as a celebration of trees, as a time in which we give thanks for trees and plant, plant life and, and more broadly nature. We'll talk about maybe the history of what Tu B'Shvat is, but I want to use the opportunity once again to think about the concern that we have for our environment and, and the facts in which, the way in which the, our relationship with the, with the environment is central, important, sometimes troubled. Uh, and there's a, there's a kind of set of ethical demands uh, that I believe Tu Bishvat uh, reminds us of. Now, of course, historically, Tu Bishvat, sometimes I ask my student, uh, students, when does Tu Bishvat fall each year? And the answer is as obvious as what color is the color of George Washington's white horse. Tu Bishvat belt falls on Tu Bishvat, on the 15th Tetvav of the Hebrew month of Shvat. That might shift uh, in terms of the, the secular calendar, but it's always the same date. And we might think of it as another 15th of the month, one that's not very pleasant, I think, for us, and that's tax day. Uh, tu Bishvat essentially began as a kind of tax day, a way of, uh, of scheduling um, the year in terms of how we treat produce, uh, 
whether we're able in particular fruits, the amount of time we need to wait until we can eat fruits, after which they are permitted in Jewish law. Tubishvat is that, you know, is that is initially that sort of tax day, the, the, the new year of the, of the trees. But of course, with time, it gains other uh, significances. It relatively early on uh, becomes a day of deep mystical significance, especially for Kabbalists. And you might have heard of Tubishvat Seders. Tubishvat Seders were founded and established by Kabbalists, um, and the ritual uh, that's used at these Sidarim, at these kind of enactments, uh, is a deeply mystical uh, ritual. It's also, I think many of us know it, perhaps it's best known as an Israeli holiday. Right now, it's very cold outside. It's hard to imagine how exactly this is the new year for the trees. Uh, but of course, in Israel, this is the very beginning of, of the blossoming and the flowering. In fact, if you've been to Israel frequently and you, you're there at different times of the year, you'll know that one of the most interesting and I think best differences between the climate there and the climate here is that here, during the winter, it's either all white uh, or more likely all brown. Everything is dead. It's a time uh, in which things go into hibernation. In Israel, it's just the opposite. In the summer, because of the heat and the sun, things get brown. But actually, during the season, after a number of months of rain, it's finally a period in which things really start to, to get green and to blossom. It looks even a little bit like Ireland, if you've ever been there, uh, during these few, few weeks and months. So it's also a day that, that's gained significance in terms of kind of our relationship with Israel, planting trees uh, and, and kind of celebrating the growth, both spiritual and physical, uh, of Israel. Uh, and, and finally, I think it is known as a kind of environmental day related to this Israeli facet, uh, almost a Jewish Arbor Day. And these are all kind of stops along the way in the history of this, of this minor holiday. I want to think uh, even more specifically in terms of the history of interpretation of a phrase that has, has long been associated with the holiday. It comes from Deuteronomy 2019. It's source number two uh, on your handout, uh, Devarim 2019. Uh, and we'll get to that in a second. Rabbi Silva referred to kind of the, the missing question mark in the title. That's part of the journey we're going to follow. How exactly do you read this phrase, each person a tree, is each person a tree? What is the relationship between the person and the tree? But even before we get to this verse in, in, in Dvarim, I wanted to first read to you a kind of evocative uh, meditation on the relationship between people uh, and trees by none other than Shai Agnon, uh, the great Israeli novelist, the only Nobel laureate in Hebrew language. This is not one of Agnon's best-known novels, but it's actually one of my favorites. It takes place actually during the, the First World War when Agnon, or the narrator, is stranded in Berlin, and he really only wants to find one thing, a roof over his head, a proper room that smells nice, that's pleasant to sit in. And the novel, or the novella, follows his trials and tribulations as he tries to find uh, that perfect room. Ultimately, at the end, that perfect room is actually not in Berlin, but is in the neighborhood of Kalkiot, where he ultimately settles. But this is sort of the framing uh, of the story. And early on, he looks out of his window, one of his windows uh, in Berlin, 
uh, and this is what he sees and this is what he thinks. Each time I stepped out of the balcony to warm up, I had to retreat inside at once, since the trees were full of dust that the breeze blew everywhere, and there were no street sweepers because of the war. Trees planted to make life better also withheld their grapes. Man, says the Bible, is a tree of the field. Man makes war, spreading pain and misery, and the trees join in. And so usually, once again, we think of trees as such lovely, wonderful, comforting forms of life. Uh, but Agnon notices during this fraught moment in history that not only do trees not provide that comfort uh, and that beauty, but actually there's a strange relationship between these trees, these dusty, dirty, and unpleasant trees, and the war that people are waging across Europe. So we're going to leave that thought really until the end of my remarks, uh, and let's actually dive into this verse in Dvarim. So Dvarim Perkhaf uh, appears towards the beginning of a, of a parsha known as Kitetse. Right? It's a parsha that actually deals with the ethics and practices of war. And the parsha famously begins with a speech that a priest of war is supposed to, actually a number of characters are supposed to um, deliver to the Israelites before they go out uh, into battle. Beyond that speech, are there are also rules of war. We might call them rules of engagement. And this is something that, you know, for those of us, myself included, who are not familiar with the world of ethics and military ethics, might seem strange, but actually is an integral part of how wars have been waged for centuries. It is an important part that prevents wars and their evils from just turning into utter chaos. And that, of course, is that there are rules of war. Right? Even though war involves the killing of fellow human beings, something that seems just utterly immoral, in cases where war is just and is moral, uh, there are ways in which wars must be fought. Right? And these laws go back centuries, in fact, millennia. Uh, they appear in a number of places in the ancient Near East. And they appear in this section of Sefer Dvarim, right? these rules of engagement uh, when it comes to war. One of them has to do with the relationship between the troops and trees. And I want to read these, these verses together with you. So once again, this is source number two. When in your war against a city, you have to besiege it a long time in order to capture it, you must not destroy its trees, wielding the axe against them. You may eat of them, but you must not cut them down. And I had to make a translation decision here, so this is one way of reading it. Are trees of the field human to withdraw before you into the besieged city? And in Hebrew, So the rule seems to be relatively clear. Even when you're waging war, even when some of the normal morals that govern our behavior, including uh, not killing fellow human beings are, are not in effect, there still are things that we need to be careful about. And we cannot destroy the trees of the city. There seems to be reference to eating from these trees and deliberately keeping it vague. And some kind of reasoning, which is going to be the focus of our thinking tonight. This, are trees of the field human to withdraw before you into the besieged city? Somehow this line of reasoning is going to explain what's happening in these verses. 
So again, I want to go kind of on a journey in the interpretation of this phrase or this kind of equation, a relationship between trees uh, and people, both because it's a facet of learning Torah, understanding how not only we wish to interpret Sufi, but various Parshalim interpreters have interpreted verses, but also because I think each of these interpretations has something to teach us uh, about our relationship with the environment, right? most specifically with trees, uh, but more broadly, the, the natural environment uh, around us. The first stop, and this is usually the first stop in traditional Jewish learning, uh, is Targum. Targum, and in this case, Targum Onkris, is an Aramaic translation. And the reason why this is such an important stop uh, is because some of the earliest examples of interpretation of Tanakh are found in these translations. Right? As we know, every translation uh, is an interpretation. And the Targum, right, the Aramaic translation, is, is no different. There was a practice, and in a few communities, there still is a practice that when the Torah is read in synagogue, it is also read alongside the recitation of this translation. And some Yemenite Jews continue this practice uh, to this day. So I'd like to say that this isn't just any old interpretation, uh, but in fact is a very well-established, even formative interpretation of Torah. And here, the translator, Onkelos, did something quite direct in order to explain this reasoning at the end of the verse. Right? This is source number three. Since the trees of the field are not like humans to be included in a siege. He adds that little word, la in Aramaic, or lo in Hebrew, right? Since trees of the field are not like humans to be included in a siege. Somehow, right, this, this negative uh, is going to help us understand why we can't chop down those trees uh, during war. And I want to show you a few other examples of this approach before we fully understand it, right? That the negative, right, saying that humans and trees are not the same gives us a reason to protect the trees in war, to not chop down trees in war. And I have two kind of examples where this line of interpretation can be found. One is in Josephus. Josephus was an important, really the only major historian Jewish historian of the first century of the Common Era. I'm sure he's well known to many of you. Um, he's best known for witnessing and in a way participating in the Roman quashing of the first revolt in Judea. And he also wrote lots of other things. He wrote a history of the Jews from creation. Uh, and this in fact appears in that history. He doesn't only spend time spell, uh, telling a historical story, but he also elaborates for the Greek reader, uh, the, the laws and the, the morals that the Jews uh, keep. And this is in a section where he's discussing these, um, these rules of war. So this is source number four. He retells, really, that section of Devarim. When you have pitched your camp, take care that you do nothing that is cruel. And when you are engaged in a siege and want timber for the making of warlike engines, do not render the land naked by cutting down trees that bear fruit but spare them as considering that they were made for the benefit of men. And if they could speak, they would have a just plea against you, because though they are not occasions of the war, they are unjustly treated and suffer in it. 
and would, if they were able, move themselves into another land. Josephus is saying a couple of very interesting uh, things here. First of all, uh, he places a dialogue right, in the mouths of, of trees, something that might seem strange to us, uh, but actually was something that was on the radar screen of Jews and others in the ancient world. Jews sometimes talk about something known as Sichat Dekalim, the conversation of trees. And this might just be a kind of metaphoric reference to what you can learn from you know, the, the, the whispering uh, of, of the tree leaves. Uh, but in fact, there are other groups in the ancient world, such as the Manichaeans, uh, who, who really imagine trees as talking. And normally what trees would say uh, was, don't eat me. Right? Unlike in Alice in Wonderland's case. Don't, don't harm me. Right? Don't, don't eat me. So whether or not we want to, we think that Josephus really thinks that trees can talk, he seems to actually simply be putting an argument kind of in the mouths or bark uh, of trees. And once again, that argument is that we are rooted in place. Right? We cannot run away. In fact, this is even more than animals, right? Animals during wartime, they can run away. But trees, right, can't run away. They really, there's no reason why they need to be targets of war. They're not, in any sense, enemy combatants. Uh, so therefore, you can't cut down the trees, okay? I, I wanna sort of think about this a little more. It's, it's fascinating. Once again, in the rules of war, if this is a just war, then one can murder, kill fellow human beings because of the reasons for the war. And that's recognized by the Torah. However, right, that's when it comes to human beings. Right? That doesn't mean that you can just kill anything that you see. And leaving aside animals for a second, right, the trees are the most vulnerable. They can't run away, they can't hide. Uh, they're obviously innocent. Uh, so, so therefore, we need to make sure not, not to hurt them. And just kind of a similar uh, point of view, this is source number five. This is a midrash, probably from the third century, a little bit after Josephus, uh, says as follows. What is the reason for this? Again, why, cannot, why, we, why can we not chop down the trees during war? It quotes the verse, for is a tree of the field a human? For when humans see someone about to kill them, they run. Right? The trees cannot run. Now, th this reasoning is, is actually fascinating because normally, not during a time of war, our ethics are in the opposite direction, right? Hopefully everyone in this room agrees that we can't normally kill fellow human beings. There are some people, in fact, I have two of them who live in my house, who think that we also should not kill animals, right? even to eat them. I refer, of course, to vegetarians, right? And one of the conversations that we often have uh, in, in our home. Uh, in fact, I take the view that because I care about my daughter's health, that I really would like them to eat meat, but at least could you eat fish? The argument that I often try to make is, well, okay, so you're concerned about the animals and right, you don't want the animals to experience pain, but aren't fish kind of on a lower plane a lower level, maybe doesn't really matter. Of course, my daughter's response, no, Abba, we're not eating fish and we're not eating uh, meat, right? However, if I want to really push them further, I say, well, maybe we should just 
you shouldn't eat a, you, you can salad because you're killing you're killing the vegetables, right? This was life, and now you're taking it away. And at that point, they usually went into their rooms and slammed the door. Now, now the point I'm making here, though, is usually, right, the hierarchy is human beings, right, sanctity of human life. Absolutely, right, sacred. Then there are animals, right, where we, we have a notion when we get to this of Sarbali Chayim, of not following causing harm to nature to animals. Even those of us who eat meat, we do so because we think that this is important for humans. We do it in a way that does not hurt the animals, etc. As you go down a totem pole, right, you care less and less until you get to plant life, where really it doesn't matter. Right? Most of us, I think, all of us uh, believe that. In the argument, right, when it comes to war, that's articulated here by Josephus and by the Midrash, it's just the opposite. Humans, because this is a war, because this is the enemy, they can be killed. They don't go to animal, into animals here, but the implication is animals can run away, and if they're caught in the crossfire, then that's really too bad. Trees, on the other hand, need to be protected. They're innocent, and also they can't run away. Okay, so this is sort of one uh, interesting approach, uh, presence, kind of in the interpretation of, of, this, uh, of this verse. Um, I'm not going to go into the Rashi now. Uh, I believe Rashi is part of the theme tradition, and if we have time, we can get to that uh, later. But I want to sum up kind of this first approach uh, as it relates to kind of our moment, or how, put better, how it helps us think about uh, the current uh, moment. Uh, and that is that, once again, right, perhaps our protection of trees or more, more broadly, of the environment, can be thought of in these terms. Right? We need to protect things, of course, that are innocent, but we especially need to protect things which are vulnerable. Right? Things like trees are extremely vulnerable. And we have an obligation, as ethical human beings, to not take the lives right, of, of these innocent and vulnerable forms of life that God created. Okay? That's approach number one. Now, if that approach is kind of a little too much uh, in the clouds, the next approach is very pragmatic. Uh, so the pragmatists among you, I think, will, will relate to this a bit more. And this is um, articulated best by the Rashbam. Uh, this is source number six. The Rashbam, of course, was Rashi's grandson. And one of the great things that we see time and time again, for those of us who spend time with these commentators, uh, is that on the one hand, Rashbam is deeply influenced by his grandfather uh, and his form of interpretation, Parshanut. However, there's often a productive tension uh, between them. Rashbam uh, enjoys quoting his grandfather and then respectfully disagreeing with him. In this case, he doesn't, um, he doesn't explicitly refer to Rashi. Uh, however, he does articulate a different approach to this verse, this part of the verse, once again, that seems to put humans and trees in relationship in order to argue that one presumably cannot cut down a tree. This is what he says. So this is actually the English that I'm going to read is on the next page. But this is source number six. Now in Hebrew, it's ki ha'adam etzasadeh, right? For or our trees, we'll see in a second, of the field, human. And he makes a grammatical point. Every key after the word low must be translated as rabbit. You may not cut down tree, cut trees down, except the tree of the field which a person comes 
to under your nose during a siege. That way you can cut down. These are close to the city, and the people of the city who are running from you use them to hide it. Let's go back to source number two, just so you can see this in the verse. It seems like a somewhat verbose set of verses, and the Rashbam is trying to account for what's happening. So when in your war against a city, you have to besiege it a long time in order to capture it, you must not destroy its trees, wielding the axe against them. You may eat of them, but you must not cut them down. And then he makes the point, not our trees are the field human, but rather that there are trees that you can cut down specifically because they shelter humans. They shelter enemy combatants. Uh, so as much as one cannot engage in wanton destruction, right, you can still, the point of the verse, the emphasis of the verse is that you can destroy trees if people use them during a siege. Okay, that's precisely his point. Source number seven, I think, makes it a little clearer. And this is from, once again, a, uh, an early midrash from sometime during the third century. So it quotes the, the end of the verse, to come before you in the siege, right? Remember the verse was, are trees of the field human, or some relationship between trees and human, uh, to withdraw before you besiege a city, or to come before you besiege. Thus, if it is blocking you, coming in front of you in a siege, cut it down. Right, so the Torah is telling you, of course, normally, right, one has to be careful not just to destroy things for no reason. But when it comes to a war, just as the normal rules of not killing fellow humans are not in place during a war, the same thing comes to trees if those trees are helping to shelter the enemy combatants. Of course you can cut down the trees uh, if soldiers are hiding, if enemy soldiers are hiding there. And that's the point of, of the verse. The whole spread of the verse is made even clearer in, in source number eight. Uh, and this is from uh, the Talmud. And there are different categories. It was also taught thus, only trees that you know, it kind of breaks down different parts of that verse from Deuteronomy, that is fruit-bearing trees, that they do not yield food, this is a barren tree. So this actually becomes important in halakha. There's a, there's a distinction made between barren trees that don't bear fruit, right, and trees that have fruit, and therefore you have right, some use of them. But since we ultimately include all trees, why then was it stated that they do not yield food? To give priority to a barren tree over one bearing edible trees. Once again, we have a kind of hierarchy. Again, this is part of the same approach, but there's a hierarchy. If you have right, barren trees and edible uh, you know, fruit trees, then you can't immediately go to cut down the fruit trees. You only cut down those trees right, if there is a need. And if there is a way to avoid cutting down the fruit trees, then you avoid them. Right? But ultimately, right, the emphasis of the verse in this approach for the Rashbam, for Deuteronomy, for Sifre Deuteronomy, and for the Talmud is telling you when you are allowed to cut down trees. But there's a kind of pragmatism um, at, at work here. I didn't bring it on the page, I didn't put it on the page, but there's a very interesting articulation of this principle in the response of the Rambam, of Maimonides. The question is asked about a tree that grows next to the local mosque. Right? Of course, Maimonides lived uh, in the Islamic land. 
and it was causing problems. It was even un unpleasant. Uh, and there were kids, actually, who were getting into trouble hiding in these trees, playing with these trees. So the question was raised, can we cut down the tree? And the answer was yes, right? because the trees uh, do not have to be protected if they are a place where kind of kids are getting into trouble. Now, he wasn't talking about a moment of horror, right? but the idea is the same, uh, a, a pragmatism. Right? Trees are not human beings. That's for sure. Uh, and, well, actually, quite definitely, they are human beings. I'm sorry. They are human beings in the sense that just as human beings, in certain cases, can be eliminated during a war, so too trees can also be eliminated during a war. Okay. So, just summarizing the second approach. The second approach is a kind of pragmatism. Of course, the Torah tells us that you cannot engage in you know, destruction for no cause. However, right, there's a kind of needs-based relationship with the environment. Of course, if you are using the wood, if you're using the fruit, then obviously you can use it. But even if right, someone is using it against you, just pragmatically, you can take it down. Our relationship is sort of defined by what's good for us. And if it's all the same, then we have to be careful with the environment. Okay, so that, that, would be, that would be the second uh, approach. I want to go to a third approach, and this approach is, I think, a little more in keeping with environmental approaches to Tuvishvat and our relationship with trees and the environment uh, more broadly. This is articulated by another major parshat, another major medieval interpreter, Rabbi Abraham Ibn Ezra, and this is, this is how he reads that same verse. But if you just kind of remember where, from where we've come, the first interpretation said, there is no connection between trees and humans, right? And for that reason, protect the humans, they're, they're, they're trees, they're innocent, and uh, they're rooted in place. Uh, the second approach seemed to say, in a way, trees are like humans, because just as enemy combatants can be eliminated, so true trees that are protecting them can. In this next approach by the Ibn Ezra, the point is a deeper connection between humans and trees, right? All humans and all trees. And this is what he says. The translation got a little garbled, so we can start from the fourth line. Something happens to the handout. This reasoning seems wrong in my eyes. For what sense does it make to say not to destroy a fruit tree because it isn't like a human being that can run away from you? Right, so he's first attacking Rashi. He doesn't like this approach that, dis that differentiates between trees and humans. And then go back, I'm sorry, to the first page. This is his explanation. For you should eat from it and not put it down, for humans are a tree of the field. Right? There's no negative here. The meaning is, for human sustenance is from the tree of the field. There's a deep relationship between humans uh, and trees. And he brings a, a proof from another verse in Deuteronomy where you see the same kind of equation almost between an inanimate object uh, and a person. Okay. So, so once again, in this new approach, humans are deeply connected to trees. That is the reason why the Torah tells us don't just destroy trees when you're in battle. Be careful. Right? Because you need these trees. They do something for you. 
they're a positive force uh, in your life. This is most famously articulated in a Jewish principle known as Baal Tashtit, right? Do not destroy. Um, and this is a rule that we're careful not to waste things, especially food, right? So if kids are kind of getting out of control, or even adults are taking portions that they're never going to eat, there is a Jewish kind of approach to this, and that is one should not take more than they're going to eat and just throw it out. Baal Tashtit, right? This kind of this ethics of, of food and waste originates in this, uh, in this verse and comes from this relationship that's described between humans uh, and, and trees. I want to look actually at source number 10, and you'll see this put quite nicely. Again, that's that Midrash, that halakhic Midrash on Deuteronomy. And this is what it says. Rabbi Ishmael says, from here we see that God had pity on fruit of the tree. Right? It is an a fortiori argument, a kalvachomer, from trees. Just as scripture warns you regarding fruit-producing trees, not to lay waste to them, all the more so one should not waste fruit itself. This teaches that human life comes only from the tree. So once again, there's a lot happening in this midrash. There is the early articulation of the principle of Baal Tashkit, uh, not to waste food, food, uh, but really anything, even the tree itself. And then there's this equation, this teaching at the end, that human life comes only from the tree. So just speaking in terms of that verse, right, source number two, we can say as follows. Do not cut down the, the fruit trees because trees of the field are human or connected to humans. Uh, and therefore, by cutting down those trees, you're just going to be harming yourself. So, let's actually look at one more source. I, I consider this a bit of a different approach, but it's, it's related. Uh, and this is source number 11, before we sum up kind of this, this approach. This is the Before Shore, another important uh, medieval commentator. Um, and he really draws a close connection, this great proximity between uh, humans and trees, even as applied to the subject at hand, which is war. There's a kind of, it is a pragmatics, but it's a pragmatics that emphasizes not the distinction between human sa the sanctity of human life and tree life, but rather the connection, the symbiotic relationship, if you will, uh, between humans uh, and trees. This is what he says. For a tree is like a human. That is, a tree can be called a human. Whether it is a fruit tree or a barren tree, since both of them, not only the fruit trees, right, can assist you to make the city come before you in the siege. But again, this is in the laws of war. These are soldiers who are attacking a city, and the point of the city, the point of the attack is to break the siege, go into the city, and conquer it. So in fact, right, it's the opposite of what we saw earlier. He's not concerned about trees shielding the soldiers, but actually he's recognizing that the trees can help, uh, right, can help the, the Israelite soldiers, Am Yisrael, as they're in this conquest. So he, he continues, meaning to conquer it for, the city fell in the siege. The word bo means it was conquered. So this goes for both fruit trees and barren trees. The fruit tree, because you can eat from it and it will give you sustenance, so that you can stay there. 
Right? So if there's a long troop in the siege, the soldiers will have something to eat, which they won't have if they've cut down the trees. The barren trees so that you can build barren ways. Thus both end up assisting you, one by eating from it, the other by building with it for the siege. And if you do these things, in other words, you use the fruit-bearing trees for food and the barren trees for wood, the trees are human. The trees of the field is like a human assisting you to fall before you in the siege, to chop it down, to make a siege of it with, and thus make the city fall before you. So in other words, right, from the perspective of the Israelite soldiers, right, the trees are fellow soldiers. The trees can help the soldiers. So the Torah is recommending just in terms of military practice, why go in with a scorched earth policy? Take care of the trees, because you can use them. You can use them to build battering rams, and you can use them to, um, uh, to eat while you're sieging, while the city is under, is under siege. Once again, as much as the before shore, this approach, this interpreter, is a, is a kind of pragmatic approach, he's still, uh, draws that same connection that we saw in the Ibn Ezra uh, and, uh, and with Rebbe Ishmael in the Sifrei, uh, Sifrei Dvarim, uh, between humans and trees. Right? Humans are, uh, uh, trees benefit humans, and therefore humans should protect uh, those, uh, those trees. So as you can see, we sort of started in this history of interpretation with a big no, right, that was inserted by Onkelos and that was also uttered by other Mepharshim, um, like Midrash Tanaim, that trees and humans are completely different, right? And now as we sort of move along, we, we see that trees and humans are coming closer together uh, in the interpretation of this, of this pursuit. The next approach, uh, I think, uh, is very well sourced, um, and I have a few examples of it um, from Tanakh, but it also, I think, is helpful to just think about what a tree looks like, and how trees have been imagined throughout human history. Right? Trees are deeply anthropomorphic. They are very, they have, they are seen and they have been seen as very human-like. They have, right, they have arms, they have, a, a, they have a, a trunk, right, a bottom, legs. This connection and even visual between humans and trees really occurs kind of cross-culturally and can be found uh, throughout the world. That's one of the reasons that trees appear frequently in parables uh, and other kind of uh, stories that humans tell to each other about each other, that trees can stand for these different people, because trees are very people-like. Um, I have one pasu from a long um, parable about trees, a political parable, uh, from Sefer Shoftim, I'll just read one of them, one, one of the verses. Once the trees went to annoy the king over themselves. They said to the olive tree, reign over us. And then the, red, the, the subsequent verses go through different kinds of trees uh, and plant life, just sort of furthering and advancing uh, the parable using different kinds of trees. But I think a kind of a quite beautiful and meaningful application uh, of the tree-human connection in a parable is from Sefer Yechezkel. And we're going to read the, we're going to read the psukim from Sefer Yechezkel, but then we're going to see how the Midrash interprets it, both because it's interesting to see the connection between the Mashal and the Mishal, but, but also because 
our verse um, is quoted, right? Our verse from Tvarim is put front and center in understanding the connection in this parable between trees and humans. Right? So the, this is source number 13 from Sefi Hezkel. Thus said the Lord God, then I in turn will take and set in the ground a slip from the lofty top of the cedar. I will pluck a tender twig from the tip of its crown, and I will plant it on a tall towering mountain. I will plant it in Israel's lofty highlands, and it shall bring forth bows and produce branches and grow into a noble cedar. Every bird of every feather shall take shelter under it, shelter in the shade of its boughs. Then shall all the trees of the field know that it is I, the Lord, who have abased the lofty tree and exalted the lowly tree. Right? Who have abased, I, the Lord, who have abased the lofty tree and exalted the lowly tree. Who have dried up the green tree and made the withered tree bud. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will act. So, obviously, right, even in terms of the pshat, the simple meaning of these psukim, they, it cannot simply be about God talking about his practices of planting and calling birds, right? The pshat, the pshat asks us to delve deeper and to think about who exactly is being referred to. We have a few clues. We know that Israel, Am Israel is mentioned here, uh, but as many parables are, the connection between you know, the signifiers and the signified between the mashal and minshal is not entirely clear. One of the places, one of the sources that tries to explicate this is in the Midrash. This is in Bereshit Rabbah, the classical Amoraic Midrash on Sefer Bereshit. Um, and this is, this is what it says. It quotes our, um, the end actually, of the section from Yechezkel that we read. Then shall all the trees know. These are people even though the verse is talking about trees, the Midrash is saying these aren't trees. These are actually people, right? Or really creatures. Uh, as it says, for a tree of the field is a human. Right? So in terms of parshanut, in terms of interpretation, this verse is being read, again, not with a negative. It's not trees and humans are different, but rather, no, a tree of the field is a human. And therefore, you should read this set of verses in Yechezkel uh, as really talking about people and creatures, and not just about trees. And then it goes down and, and gives some explication, quoting the verse, that it is I, the Lord, who have abased the lofty tree. Who is the lofty tree? And the assumption is, is that it's rereading a biblical story. Uh, in this case, from Sefer uh, Bereshit, the book that's being interpreted in Bereshit Rabbah. So the lofty tree in this case is Abimelech, right, who had an encounter uh, with Abraham and Sarah, um, exalted the lowly tree, this is Abraham, right? Dried up the green tree. In that encounter, if you recall, Abimelech takes Sarah, right, uh, against the wishes of Abraham, though Abraham, you know, claims uh, in order to save himself that they were sisters. But God said that you cannot take Sarah, she is a married woman. So what happened in the story is that Abimelech's um, spouses, um, their wombs were closed, right? So they dried up the green tree. These are the wives of Abimelech, right? As it says, the Lord had closed fast every womb in the household of Abimelech. 
and made the withered tree bud, bud this is Sarah, right? That Sarah actually ended up having, finally, at, at a very ripe old age, a Yitzchak. So what concerns us here is not so much this particular story, but is the assertion of the Midrash that even though Yechezkel seems to be talking about trees, right? God's talking about trees and planting trees and raising up trees and lowering them down. In fact, really God is talking about humans. And the proof, right, is that there's a connection made in our verse in Dvarim between people uh, and humans, right? So, so this, this approach, and this is just a small example of this approach, is something we haven't, you know, really seen yet uh, thus far. It's not particularly pragmatic. It might strike some of us as strange, Again, in that hierarchy that I painted, uh, you know, between humans at the top, maybe, you know, animals, cattle, right, fish, uh, plant life, uh, here there's an assertion um, that humans and trees are very closely connected. You can tell a story about trees, uh, and really you're talking about people. Trees are very anthropomorphic, right? Uh, and therefore, maybe trees, the life in trees, should be respected, should be cherished. That doesn't mean that anywhere in these sources um, there is a claim that you can't eat salad. But there is right, a, a, a profound humanizing that's happening to trees in this strand uh, that basically says the same way you do not kill a human outside of the theaters of war, uh, so to a tree, right? You should, not, uh, you should not kill because a tree is a living, is a living being. It is a living, uh, living being. Okay, uh, the, the, the last approach is going to really seem quite bizarre to you um, in the way we think about the world, but I actually think that more than any of the other approaches, there's something there that speaks to us kind of now as we're thinking about what will be with the world, uh, what, what, what will be unfolding in terms of the anger, so to speak, of the world, uh, the violence of nature uh, during climate change. I think there's something there. But first, let's see, let's see what, what the sources say. So this is the final source. Um, and once again, this is from Breshit Rabbah. It's a midrash on the book of uh, Genesis, of Breshit. And the verse, I just put the verse that is being interpreted at the top. It's the following verse. The Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in, in man forever, since he too is flesh. The beginning of the Midrash is a little difficult to parse, but I'm really, I want to emphasize the second half of the Midrash. I said that my spirit shall judge them, yet they did not ask. I will tie them up with supper. I said that my spirit shall judge them, yet they did not ask. I will tie them all together. For Rabbi Eliezer said, only a human being can be liable for another. So what Rabbi Eliezer seems to be saying is something that we all assume in, in law, right? Humans, if they harm humans, if they damage humans, they are responsible. But if other kinds of beings do that, they're not responsible, they're animals, right? This is something we assume uh, in, in, in the way law operates. Probably it has something to do with our notion of free will, right? Humans have free will. Humans can make a choice. If a human makes a choice to harm another human, he will be responsible. Does an animal have a choice? Right? This is a question that has bothered philosophers for generations. 
according to Rabbi Lazar, it's just humans. But then things get a little more interesting and perhaps strange. Rabbi Natan says, even a dog or a wolf is liable. Rafuna Ben Gurion says, even a stick or strap. As it says, for the yoke that they bore and the st stick on their back, the rod of their taskmasters you have broken as on the day of Midian. Right? It's a pasuk from Yeshayahu. And what the pasuk seems to be saying is that not only is vengeance meted out on the taskmaster for enslaving, but even the rod that was used, right, uh, is going to be punished. We normally associate this with a very childlike, childish approach to the world. Right? Perhaps you know a kid uh, bangs into the door, uh, stubs his toe, and you say, bad door, right? This is childish. The door doesn't have any, um, any, any, any moral culpability. Yet the Midrash seems to be saying something very strange. I, I can't solve all of it, but very strange about culpability even of animals, right, and right, inanimate objects. I want to focus, though, on the last part of the Midrash, which I have kind of in the last section here. And that has to do with trees. And it's going to bring us back to Agnon also. Says Rabbi Akha, even bare trees, right, those barren trees, will in the future give an accounting. The rabbis cited support for this from here, our verse. For like humankind is the tree of the field. Just as humankind gives an accounting, so too trees give an accounting. Right? So, in a way, we've really come full circle. Right? At the beginning, the Parsha Nun, the interpreter said, trees and humans are completely, utterly different. The word love appears in the verse. Humans are not trees. Trees are not humans. And then we saw a sort of movement towards a kind of equation or connection between humans and trees. This is sort of the most extreme version of this, right? What is more human than the fact that we, right, we must give an accounting for our actions in this world, to the fact that we have, right, free will, and if we act incorrectly, or if we act positively, then we are rewarded or punished. Uh, this is actually now being applied to trees, right? Now, this is a very strange way to think. We saw a little bit in Agnon in his musings that he sees the trees and he sort of curses the trees uh, for the dust and for participating in making his life miserable just like the humans were battling uh, across the earth. But I want to offer a way of, of and, and really conclude with this point, a way of thinking about um, this strange statement. And it has to do with things that we sometimes ignore in, in the Torah, in Tanakh, that are really present if you kind of put on your, put on your glasses uh, and look properly. And that is that even inanimate objects, even the earth itself, was humanized, especially Eretz Yisrael, Eretz Canaan. In parts of Sefer Vayikra and other parts of the Torah, God tells the, the Jews that you will come into the land of Israel uh, and the nations that have been living in the land of Israel will be expelled. The reason being, the reason that's offered, is because somehow the nations believed you have led to the expulsion of uh, the earth expelling them. Not only that, the Israelites are warned that if you don't act properly, and again, this is very strange for modern sensibility, but I want to follow this. If, 
if you if you do not act properly, then the, the earth will vomit you out. I mean that language is used. It will spit you out uh, uh, of the land. In fact, right, part of what seems to be happening when it comes to Yom Kippur uh, is that normally a person sins, right, and he's able to bring he or she's able to bring a sacrifice, engage in kind of the normal process of repentance. That's laid out in the Bible. Uh, but one day a year, there's this very long ritual that the Kohen Gadol does. Uh, and it's been argued that part of what's happening there is purifying the land of sort of a broader contamination. In other words, that humans, when they act immorally, uh, especially to one another, things like incest and murder are things which are described as contaminating the land. So when they do this, they're not just affecting fellow humans, but somehow they're affecting the world. Right? Somehow their actions um, are cosmic, right? affect the actual world. Now when it comes to the, the conversation that has, is relatively recent, uh, that people have been having about the environment, this very strange way of thinking actually um, might sound familiar. We have done things, right? perhaps since the Industrial Revolution, We've engaged with the environment, trees and other things, uh, in a way that has led to a kind of contamination, a kind of buildup, right? And at that point, we, of course, are concerned about our planet, we're concerned about our health. Uh, perhaps some of us are even concer concerned about the creatures themselves, the animals, uh, even their trees, uh, even, even the trees. But kind of beyond that, right, there's a violence, right? There's, there's, there's a reaction that we seem to be feeling from, from the world, from nature. Whether it's the burning of the forests, whether it's the hurricanes, right? Again, if these are seen uh, as connected to climate change, it seems as if kind of the nature has got in on the, on the, on the evil that humans have uh, inflicted uh, on the earth, right? So just a thought experiment and a kind of attempt to use of this midrash uh, to, to kind of understand uh, in unexpected ways our relationship between right, us and, and nature, especially when things uh, are getting hairy, I think there's something, there's something here, right? That in a way, right, nature is sort of rebelling against us, it's going against us, uh, and we'll ultimately have to give some sort of accounting. So I just want to summarize uh, kind of what we've seen uh, and then we can have a discussion and questions. Uh, the, floor, the floor is open. So the first approach, right, even as applied to questions of humans and, and, and trees and the environment, uh, is a sympathetic um, approach. And that is trees are not humans. Humans sometimes do things, nations do things, where war is justified. But trees are different. Trees are rooted in place, they're vulnerable, and therefore, as vulnerable right, um, uh, forms of life, they need to be protected. We have an obligation to protect them. That's the first approach that we saw. The more pragmatic approach, which I think has been dominant um, for uh, most of human history, is that nature is there for us to use. Right? We're supposed to conquer the world. The Torah even tells us, God tells us, uh, to conquer the world, uh, technology, Use, use the trees, use nature, and that's fine. Perhaps we need to be careful not to overuse, and that was also part of that approach, 
We shouldn't waste things, but ultimately, nature's there uh, to be used. The third approach recognized that nature and trees are a source of human sustenance. And that could be framed kind of uh, in terms of hakaratatov, gratitude, or even also pragmatics, right? Don't bite the hand that feeds you, right? Don't cut down trees, which ultimately are going to provide you and your soldiers uh, with, um, with, um, with, um, with food. And related to that, we saw that they're even, nature is even seen as sort of fellow players with humans, with human soldiers engaging in battle, and the trees are just like them. And the fifth and kind of sixth approaches seem to be a bit more mystical and strange, uh, but kind of deeply rooted, rooted in, in the way humans look at trees. Trees are very human-like. They look human-like. They're often thought of um, as, as a good vehicle for understanding humanity through parables and things like that. Therefore, right, the same way you don't hurt humans, uh, you also don't hurt uh, trees. And the final kind of approach, uh, which seems very strange, um, but we put it out there, is that somehow trees are capable, uh, are culpable. Somehow trees um, have a kind of free will, just like humans do. Uh, and therefore, they are deeply human, but of course that means that if they come to bite you, then you need to, um, you need to respond. All these approaches, I think, um, it's not as if we choose one approach, or even throughout our history we've chosen one approach. All of these approaches have been operative. Uh, all of these approaches give us a lot to think about, both in terms of the history of um, interpretation of those books, but also in the way we make our, our way in the world uh, and our relationship with nature. So thank you very much. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Just gonna get some water. Yeah, uh, you can speak up. Yes. The trees and the shrubs give us a sense of regeneration because of power that trees have power. Of course. Uh, the roots of the trees give us a sense of like water, and it becomes water reservoir. So there's a much deeper relationship whether the tree bears fruit or not. So my question is, do any of the Akronis, the Shonen may have not have known about the Shonen may have, do any of the Akronis talk about not just the fruit of the trees, but pollination? So the, the Rishonim certain, uh, so let me just repeat the question. Uh, and that was, the sources that we saw in the discussion that I laid out, we didn't actually refer to what we now know trees to give us, which are things like oxygen uh, and, 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 there, and, 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 and various things that humans need uh, to live, not just the food themselves or the wood of battering rams. And the question was whether any of the sources uh, refer to this. I did not find any of the Rishonim of the earlier uh, medieval commentators, uh, because I don't think they were aware of that aspect uh, of trees. I, it is quite likely that it is in the acronym and the later commentators, but I did not see it. I didn't do a full search uh, of everything on, on this verse, um, but I, I actually didn't see it, which is interesting. So thank you for that comment. Yeah. Um, I just learned in Majesty yesterday that the first creature to rebel against God was not yeah, that's, there's another source, uh, just to kind of repeat your, your comment, uh, which seems to have this 
similar strange theology uh, in which I think it's a you know it's it's also applied to the citron to the etro which is has this quality of being a fruit that tastes like the bark that's not a negative because the idea was that the bark used to be right tasteful uh, and and delicious and though that's how God created the world the world rebelled against God right? there's a lot to think about there. Uh, also in terms of our story, and again, it's not the only place where we see that the trees are about to possess free will. Yeah. Thank you. I learned so much in the adventure. I think I teach everybody. When you were relating to us the vignette of the dialogue that you had with your daughter, and then you later developed it further about the hierarchy, uh, I was just thinking, how did the catalyst what I remember is that the transportation and the hierarchy in, in their nomenclature, I recall that I'm recollecting it, uh, is domain, that's the lowest level, silent means the earth, rock. And then they have somea, which doesn't seem to recognize the Shikhatu Talib of trees, and, and only after that do you have Chai, referring to the motile, physically motile. Yeah. Well, no, I, I did not intend to overturn that usual classification. That classification is a very old classification, just to kind of repeat the point. There's an old classification that goes, I mean, I think I said to you earlier, but Yehuda Levi famously um, uh, uses this uh, to kind of categorize the world. The lowest level is inanimate, you know, the stone, and he distinguishes between plant life, somewhat, and, um, and wild life. Uh, and then finally human, right? So that is right. That 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 point of categorization is not overturned. However, in the case of this verse and its history, there's a you know there's there's a, a way of rethinking it, of temporarily reversing it, I think, uh, by acknowledging that there is a quality uh, or vulnerability that Kai has because it can't move, uh, which does not apply to um, but normally, I think, you know, humans realize this, that even if we're careful, I'm a big carnivore, that I don't just want, you know, go over and indiscriminately kill cows, right? I, you know, I buy my meat, I eat it, I eat it respectfully, and that's, and that's fine. Um, I have no problem eating salad. So, so, so Oh, why is the term? I think because in I think going all, all the way back to biblical Hebrew, just like wild, right? Wildlife in English usually refers to animals, right? So chayot, right, is a way of referring to kind of animals. So it's just a grammatical point. Yeah. So, so not all of the um, um, uh, 
commentators make this point or emphasize this point. And it, it is not entirely clear how, um, how it can be found in the verse, um, other than you eat from the tree. Right? So the verse says, you may eat of them, but you must not cut, cut them down. That inspired some of the approaches to distinguish, even the most pragmatic approaches, to distinguish between fruit trees because they have greater human value uh, than barren trees. Right? So fruit trees, you have to be especially careful because there's the idea of bal tashri, do not waste something that you can consume. Barren trees, you might be able to use them to build things, but in the hierarchy of uses, they're seen as lower down. And halakha, uh, as that responsum of the Rambam uh, illustrates, definitely recognizes this distinction. Uh, perhaps the Rambam would have written differently if it was a fruit tree that was grown next to that mosque. Yes, yes, of course, of course, it's there. Right, correct. It's explicit in the verse. What actually happened is the Midrash kind of downplays it, one of the Midrashim, um, and says that even the fruit tree can be, um, uh, can be taken down in certain cases. So thank you for that correction. Yeah. I'm just curious if you found in anybody, except for the Rambam, the notion that the idea of not destroying the tree has to do with don't be crazy when you're in war. Yeah, I, I I don't remember that being in the Rambam, but that does sound like a very Maimonidean formulation uh, that one, um, it, you know, one just needs to exercise restraint, particularly in a in a situation where often humans can be, you know, other animals. That's a you know, I think a beautiful reading. I just don't remember seeing that in the round, but it could be it's there. Yeah. The discussion about the relationship between uh, human beings and species. I don't know if it's anyone brought up. It's a very interesting uh, fact that the very first negative yeah. commandment that God gave to man, to Adam, was Nikol Eitzagan of Otaka, except for the Eitzagan. Uh, That's a very interesting comment. There's a lot to think about there. Um, yeah, I mean, that is the first negative, negative comment, uh, uh, commandment uh, in the Torah. You know, it, it, it doesn't seem as if the concern is for the trees themselves, but for what happens to humans when they eat, you know, that special tree. But it is thought-provoking, right, that that is the first. Not again, not that I saw, but it, it could be there. I haven't read everything. Just to, uh, yeah. reinforce what I just said, even in the eighth, the punishment is at the end. And it's at the both for man and for the woman. Yeah. So you have to eat the both of Rena, the end of the Bibonin, and yeah. the destruction of the world, and Vayita Seda, we both. So clearly, yeah. it's always playing. Well, eight is 
yeah, yeah. Amazing, yeah, thank you. It would seem that the, uh, that the pre-fall, pre-sin uh, Adam is not simply vegetarian, he's introduced only, and it's only after the fall that he's then told to go and to, uh, to, to, uh, to grow and to grow faster. Um, so uh, this is, I think, the underlying idea of Adam The first Adam, the archetypical Adam, is indeed a fruit-eating yeah. being. Yes, 100 percent. I mean that's very well established in kind of early biblical interpretation, including Hazal, that Adam Arishan was a vegetarian, right? Then. That's totally vegetarian. He's a fruit eater. A fruit eater. Yeah. The difference between Adam and the animals, which is the end of creation, is that right. the animals, humans can eat the plant, plant and, the, and, the, and the fruit, but the animals can only eat the plant and can't eat the fruit. Right. Which leads into the next story about the snake, because the snake is upset that the snake can't eat the fruit. That was bothers the snake, actually. Wow. <laughs> and that also suggests that the two creation narratives talk to each other. Some people have claimed that they're two separate stories. Yeah. There's also the draw. They're speaking to each other. That's wow. exactly the point. So, like, um, yeah, the point is well taken. So, that, that's precisely what but the fruit is being highlighted, actually. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Mm. People. Yeah. And that makes them, puts them in a very unique position. Right. And the other thing is that they're not culpable of decisions that are made by human beings. So how they're used by enemies, by which side of the siege, is not up to them in any way. Right. So, so thank you for that comment. And yeah, I'll, I'll repeat the comment. There were two comments. First of all, um, that one of the unique aspects of trees is, uh, and the relationship with humans, is that many trees live beyond human years. So there is a concept when it comes to trees, uh, when you plant a tree, especially trees like olive trees, uh, and this is, there are many beautiful stories in Chazal uh, about this idea. Um, they last beyond humans, and, and that should be kind of brought into the discussion. Uh, and the other comment was sort of, I think, asserting that, you know, like the early approaches that we saw, that trees are absolutely not culpable. Uh, in fact, that's why you have to protect trees, because humans can do all kinds of terrible things with trees, um, uh, but the trees are, are, are utterly innocent. And I agree with you. I mean, you know, I, I, I was trying to kind of understand what can happen when humans and trees collaborate. Of course, it's not literally that the trees are culpable, but the trees and nature can react violently to humans. It's not their fault, it's not the hurricane's fault, 
But the way we kind of think of that is that, you know, Mother Nature is aging, actually. Okay, thank you so much.